0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, John Hudak on what's happening in Congress. And stay tuned after the interview to hear Bruce Jones talk about his new book, The Risk Pivot.
1: This week, the 113th Congress wrapped up what was one of its least productive periods in American history. In the final weeks, actually, the Congress, however, was quite productive, passing what was a large-scale omnibus and continuing resolution to fund the government, most of the government through September. But at the same time, the Senate had the opportunity, because of a political miscalculation from Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, to confirm dozens of President Obama's nominees both to the federal bench and to federal agencies. This riled many Republicans who were trying to prevent these nominations from going through and was quite uplifting for both the White House and for Democrats in the Senate. At the same time, the Congress exited uh, with some record low approval ratings and many of its members leaving uh, the House and the Senate in a manner unusual for Congress, oftentimes many members of Congress who are either beaten or choose to retire uh, leave Congress in an unhappy way or in a way that that they reflect on uh, the positives that they've dealt with. But many members, including Congressman Jim Moran from Virginia and others, essentially left Congress happy, saying that they were glad to be done with the institution because of the dysfunction that has taken over Washington. And so in the weeks ahead, come January 5th, a new Congress will be sworn in with a Republican majority in the Senate. And the incoming Senate majority leader, Mitch McConnell, has already begun to lay the foundations for what will be the Republican agenda in the new year. The first vote up in the Senate in the new year will be on the Keystone XL pipeline, an effort from the perspective of Republicans and a signal on their part of what the coming Congress will be like in that they will push the White House to either take a position or support more conservative issues and more conservative policies as the Congress becomes fully divided in partisan terms from a Democratic White House. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening in Congress.
0: My guest today is Stephen Hess. He is a senior fellow emeritus at Brookings. He first joined Brookings in 1972 and has served on the White House staff during the Eisenhower and Nixon administrations and was also an advisor to Presidents Ford and Carter. Steve is also a prolific writer, having authored or co-authored numerous books on the media, journalism, and the presidency, including What Do We Do Now?, a workbook for the president-elect, The Media and the War on Terrorism, and... Whatever Happened to the Washington Reporters, 1978 to 2012? If I could offer a gross generalization about these books, I would say they are practical, engaging, and a whole lot of fun. Which brings us to the subject of today's podcast, Steve Hess's latest book, The Professor and the President, Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the Nixon White House. And I have to say, in a word, it's fascinating. It's a fun read. And I think it's an important contribution to understanding these people in these times Welcome to the podcast, Steve.
2: Thank you. I think I should stop now. You've given the book such a send-off. There's nothing more I can say that, uh, that's going to sell more books than, than what you've already done. Thank you very much, Fred. It's a uh, pleasure being with you.
0: I'm glad you're here. Um, and I should <laughs> clarify, I'm not your publicist, but, it, but oh. if I were, it would be an easy job. <laughs> okay. Uh, I loved this book. It was really great. It's about the intersection of two very important but very different men, but it's also very personal. Can you discuss why you wrote this book and, and what it's about?
2: Well, I was there. This book takes place in the White House in 1969. Basically, takes place in the west basement of the White House. Daniel Patrick Moynihan is housed there, as is Henry Kissinger. Moynihan is the assistant to the president of urban affairs. I'm right next door, the next office, and I'm the deputy assistant. So, this was, what, almost a half century ago <laughs> If I'm going to write it. I better get to to work right now uh, because I I loved it. It was by far the most interesting year of my life. Moynihan has then and has remained uh, my dearest friend, and it was a an opportunity in which I could express my basically my love for Pat Moynihan.
0: Uh, I'll admit that it was also an important year for me because that was the year I was born. Oh my! <laughs> but anyway. Um, <laughs> wow. So you were the uh, you were assistant to uh, Pat Moynihan in the White House. And I, and I should uh, quote you uh, at the very beginning of the book and fast the, the fact the first lines are, I am the only person perhaps in the world who is a friend of both Richard Nixon and Daniel Patrick Moynihan before they knew each other. Uh, So how did you know these
1: two men?
2: Yeah, I I had better explain that initially, which is the way I do it in the book. Uh, And that's important because then I want to stay out of the story uh, as much as as possible. Story that I tell uh, in the present tense, 1969, 1970, for a very obvious reason. And that is, when you think of Richard Nixon, what do you think of uh, you think of Watergate, Watergate. And I thought it was very important uh, to have the reader in a frame of mind as we were at the time. We didn't know Watergate. didn't mean anything to us. So we start from, from fresh. Uh, and I better say why I'm there. Well, I, I'm there uh, in part uh, because uh, I had become a speechwriter for, for Richard Nixon. I had been a writer a speech writer for Dwight Eisenhower uh, and after Eisenhower went back to Gettysburg uh, and Nixon went back to California uh, eventually uh, both of them had some needs that I could fill uh, and uh, I went to work for 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 both of them uh, for Eisenhower uh, it was very strange what I did uh, was answer his mail uh, because, because the Republican National Committee said, my goodness, if we want to keep this guy alive. Uh, we had better answer his mail. And so uh, I've been on the White House staff. They asked me if I'd like to do it. I said, sure, it'd be fun. We didn't know how much mail or anything else. So we just, piecework. work. All right. Every time uh, you answer a letter, you get whatever it was, 25 cents. There was an avalanche of people mm-hmm. who wanted to write uh, to, uh, to to Dwight Eisenhower uh, kids wanted him uh, to tell him what, what they should say about whatever the national debate topic that year. Uh, people wanted some piece of his possessions for their charity auctions. People wanted his autograph. People just wanted to say hello. So what happened, of course, was that in that, that period, uh, I did so well. Uh, that it really allowed me to become an independent writer. For Nixon, uh, it it was it was different. I learned a lot of things about about Nixon, uh, and I learned, by the way, uh, that he was um, uh, not only very easy to write for. Uh, we did a lot of pieces for the Saturday Evening Post, uh, columns for the Los Angeles Times. But he was very generous. Uh, he would split these large fees with me, and I'd say, "Gee." Dick, uh, I mean, it's, that's too much. And he was embarrassed. And said, oh, no, no. I just give it to the IRS anyway. So um, there I was in a position uh, with these two wonderful major historic figures, somewhere between them. Uh, and um, Nixon then decided to run uh, for governor of California. Uh, and he asked me to come out and I did and became a speechwriter. He lost and went back to, to – to, and left – California. went to New York uh, and um, I continued to work for him at uh through 1965 when he asked me to come to, to New York and I just couldn't. I had commitments and all sorts of family in Washington. <clears throat> so I said no. So he hired another young man named Pat Buchanan. <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered uh, uh, where Pat Buchanan would be today. He, uh, if, if I had accepted that, that offer, Pat Piana was a young uh, writer on the St. Louis Globe, Disp- uh, Globe Dispatch, I think it was called, Globe Democrat. So I knew both of these folks. Uh, my connection with, with Moynihan on the other hand was, was very different. He just was a very good personal friend. It was neither political nor professional. Uh, mm-hmm. And suddenly, very strangely, uh, he didn't expect to be invited. I didn't encourage him in any way uh, to uh, to join the the Nixon staff. He did. So this was this very odd couple, perhaps a straight oddest couple in American history. There was this conservative Republican president choosing this liberal Harvard Democratic intellectual uh, as uh, his chief domestic uh, advisor. Uh, And Pat, it was Pat who actually asked me if I would join the White House staff. And I thought to myself, "Gee, he, I guess he needs me because he doesn't know these Republicans. I'm right. the only Republican he probably knows, and I can tell him a little bit about this cast of characters that he's suddenly going to be thrown in with."
0: And, and Nixon uh, had uh, a reputation as being totally disinterested in domestic policy. Did he not?
2: This th- this was fascinating because N- Nixon, even in the years I wrote speeches for him, I don't think I, we ever did anything um, but international affairs, maybe some speeches about crime and that sort of thing, but never substantive speeches about American politics, American domestic uh, uh, affairs. Uh, and um, this meant that for Pat Moynihan, it was like a blank slate. He could he could build on this void uh, and of course, he had no idea that it was going to be anything like that. Uh, and, uh, in fact, it was almost the first thing I, I said to him, he had just come down from the Nixon headquarters in the Pierre Hotel and in in New York. We were having dinner, and he was he couldn't get over it. He said the man is ignorant. <laughs> he meant ignorant of the of these right. affairs that they had talked about. And I I explained to him, and I gave him an anecdote. I said, well, you know, it's nineteen sixty two. Uh, he's about to lose the the governorship that election day. Uh, he calls me to say goodbye because i thank me. I'm going back to Washington. And I say, Dick, do you still think you're going to lose? And he said, yeah, but I'm never going to have to talk about crap like dope addiction again. And that was a <laughs> domestic thing. That was so unimportant, so out of his, uh, his vision uh, that that's, that's where he was. So for, uh, for Pat Moynihan, it was a marvelous opportunity to educate, <laughs> to have a student. And the student happened to be the president of the United States. And the student was very, very smart. And and uh, and they they got on in the most famous way uh, because there was Pat Moynihan who was so utterly different than all of the others. Who the, the gray men there weren't very many women. The gray men on the staff, and he was somebody described him as somebody who looked as if he were going walking down the street to go to a circus. And he was so funny, and he mm-hmm. was so delightful, and in a strange way, uh, Nixon fell in love with him. And Nixon had the the habit from time to time of having these very brief intellectual love affairs. But with Moynihan, it came at just the right time, uh, and so they had these conversations quietly there in the light, talking about, you know, uh, Pat, what book should I read? And mm-hmm. Pat saying, Hey, you better read uh, Disraeli. You better read Melbourne. He gave him a list. He gave him a list. And uh, Nixon read them. He absolutely Nixon. Nixon uh, was a person who would get up. Uh, two, three in the morning uh, and he'd pick up one of these books and he'd start to read. Uh, and he thought this was marvelous. He, uh, he saw real parallels between what was going on and, and 19th century uh, British politics. Uh, talked about himself as being a sort of a, a – in, in the Disraeli mode.
0: Let me read a passage that really conveys the uh, the style of the book. I think mm-hmm. the present tense is fascinating, okay. but also gets to what you were just talking about, and I'll quote here. Most staff memos to a president are essentially politician to politician or expert to CEO. But Pat is writing to Nixon intellectual to intellectual without a bit of patronizing. Nixon has never been treated this way before. He loves it.
2: This avalanche of Moynihan's memos, which came you – know, instantly on his being appointed. That is well before uh, the president even took office. Uh, and you know, these were long, complicated, complex conversations about all sorts of things, many of which the president could do nothing about. But Moynihan was interested and thought the president should be interested. Things like uh, uh, black Jewish relations. Uh, I remember what. Uh, and um, what happened, which was very unfortunate, was they were so interesting that Nixon started to send them around, uh, and of course, you know what happens when they do that—they mm. start getting leaked. And the famous one on uh, benign neglect, right. about a year later, was just one of these long memos to the president that uh, suddenly was all over town.
0: Can you talk about what that benign neglect memo was all about? Because it wasn't—it wasn't as uh, simple as it seemed.
2: Yeah, no, no it, it wasn't. This wasn't until uh, 1970, I should say, by the way, that I was out of the White House by that time. Uh, I was, uh, in December, I was appointed the National Chairman of the White House Conference on Children and Youth. Uh, so the second, Moynihan, of course, as a Harvard professor, was given two years leave of absence. So it's 1969 and 1970. Uh, the benign neglect memo was actually a memo that was that was very in favor of... Things that had to be done uh for uh, in the in the african American community, uh but the pace should be otherwise, uh, and the style should be otherwise, and we shouldn't be shouting these things uh the, the rhetoric from the rooftops, but doing them uh quietly well of course, uh Moynihan got carried away and used a phrase that actually came out of british canadian mm-hmm. relations uh, so it was too easy to characterize it as, as just ignoring. Uh, the, the the black uh, part of, uh, of the United States, which it wasn't. Boyne offered to reside, and Nixon wouldn't accept uh, the resignation. So it was an embarrassment uh, for all of of, of them. Uh, but basically, uh, Fred, th- th- this this book, this little book, is a series of connected mysteries. I mean, I'd like to sort of mm. think of it that way. First, it's the mystery of why Nixon would ever pick somebody like Moynihan for this job. Uh, you know, what Nixon thought of, of Harvard. It was, it was he, he didn't just talk about Harvards. He talked about Harvard bastards. You know, those were those people up at Harvard, all those liberals in mm-hmm. Cambridge. And there was Pat Moynihan. And of course anybody at Harvard of course just had utter disdain for Richard Nixon. So uh, you there there had to be a reason for one to pick the other and one to accept the job. So in a sense, that's the first mystery we have to deal with. The second mystery is, is even unusual and strange. Uh, Nixon, having given uh, Moynihan this title and and uh, this responsibility, the day after he was nominated, the Janu- uh, day uh, after uh, he was inaugurated, January uh, 21st, 1969, Arthur Burns, a great friend of his who had been doing putting together some transition material, came into his office to present the transition material and the president, now the president, said to Burns, you are going to be the counselor to the president Mm -hmm. with cabinet rank and your job will be domestic policy. Uh, Burns had, had had turned down a job like that much earlier. He was really just waiting around to become the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He couldn't say no to the president, it was out of the question at that point. And what had happened? Something totally unexpected. Uh, he had put in opposition a Harvard liberal social scientist in conflict with a Columbia conservative economist, two very, very honorable and attention uh, ideologues, if you will, uh, from, from the Ivy League were going to compete in front of the president. The president never expected anything like this. It's all accidental. So the, the second thing is what happens in this amazing conflict between, between these two men. And of course any way you looked at it from outside, uh, Burns should have won. Mm-hmm. Burns was the Republican. Burns was the longtime friend of Nixon's. Uh, and Moynihan uh, wasn't a friend of, of Nixon's. It certainly wasn't mm-hmm. a Republican.
0: And he technically outranked Moynihan.
2: Outranked Moynihan. Moynihan was staff. Burns was was cabinet. Uh, and what happens is so this is the second mystery, and the and the solution. What happens there is that it's Pat Moynihan <laughs> who wins. By winning, I mean he gets through the major piece of social legislation called the Family Assistance Plan. Uh, which is the most progressive piece of legislation since the New Deal, coming from Richard Nixon. And so the third mystery is, how did this happen? How, how did Nixon, with Moynihan's guidance, choose this piece of legislation? So there are three uh, mysteries connected. And I had hope, I had expected when I did the first draft, that the book end, would end there at the end of 1969 because of a of other things. That's where I left the, the White House. And the book, at that point, reads like a Capra uh, movie. Jimmy Stewart comes to, comes to Washington uh, uh, and figures the good guys and the bad guys and sorts it all out and, and would, would have in a wonderful movie. Unfortunately, Moynihan stayed a second year. Uh, and so, instead of this victory lap, all sorts of awful things happen.
1: Hmm. Uh,
2: Cambodia, the president goes into Cambodia. Uh, the reaction is the Kent State and the killing of students mm-hmm. in the street. Uh, the the defeat of this in the Senate of the Family Assistance Plan, uh, and um, and of course the benign neglect memo leaking that you you mentioned, and, and so a new form of reality comes. And this gets sorted out in a most incredible way too. Uh, and uh, that's, since the last mystery when Moynihan is about ready to go back to Harvard uh, and Nixon offers him uh, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And what a job from Moynihan's perspective to be the U.S. spokesman to the world. Mm-hmm. Nothing could have pleased him more because eventually he took it under President Ford. And then he goes through uh, and, and we have dinner, and he even offers me to a job to come to New York as his deputy. And what happens, he gets into leaves, gets into the elevator in apartment between the first and the fifth floor, says, no, I can't do it. And he writes this, this letter to the president in which he outlines all of the reasons he can't do it. Uh, and it's really quite a moving thing, though. Um, Prominent among those is what it would do to his family. Right, simply couldn't do this to the family. And then secondly, he says, hey, Mr. President, I'm broke. (laughs) I came here with $60,000. I've got anything. I can't afford to be the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. And then he says, hey, Henry Kissinger and Bill Rogers, Secretary, they don't want me anyway. Right. And on and on in this most remarkable letter. And so he goes back to Harvard. And this, this deep deep friendship uh, uh, between these two men. Uh, and after a while, the uh, <laughs> president, Richard Nixon says, become ambassador to India. And so he leaves Harvard again. <laughs> and so this strange cross-current uh, between these two men that I'm tracing, first, it, it totally changes Pat Moynihan's life from, from the White House to the U.N., to India, and, and at the U.N., uh, back to the U.N. under Jerry Ford and becomes such a celebrity of the U.N. Uh, that he gets himself elected to the United States Congress and mm-hmm. serves for, for, for four terms. So right. it totally changes the trajectory of his life. And for Nixon, it totally changes the domestic trajectory of his life. And he's suddenly proposing something that he never promised and never expected uh, when he – if and when he became president of the United States. So that's the story.
0: Now, the family assistance plan, uh, it did fail in the Senate committee then, but what happened to it later?
2: Well, uh, eventually, uh, bits of it came. The, the supplemental Social Security, which is aid to disabled, to, to blind, and to so forth, di- did pass. Uh, and, and it passed, in a sense, uh, almost as a reaction to the family assistance plan. Russell Long, the chairman of the finance committee, had to pass something. He wasn't going to pass the family assistance plan in part because that was too helpful to to, to black Americans, people who he wasn't much interested in. Uh, but blind and disabled and so forth, that was going to be all right. Uh, and so he moves these things, such as state programs, basically, uh, into national programs. So a strange thing happened. So the 1972 really did become a high water mark in terms of, of, of social legislation. And one never expected that from Richard Nixon, who, after all, was engaged in a war, a huge mm-hmm. war that he had to end called Vietnam.
0: I want to add too, thinking about the Family Assistance Plan, thinking yeah. about um, Moynihan's view of the UN ambassadorship. Mm-hmm. The, the book provides, among many things it provides, so excellently, is this um, this window into the uh, the bureaucracy, the administrative give and take, mm-hmm. uh, the way that Burns and Moynihan. Seek allies for their positions on the reform. I mean, I think you, yeah. you catalog that that Burns had the agreement of far more cabinet members yeah. than Moynihan had, yeah. and yet he took it. And also, Moynihan very clearly understood the relationship between Kissinger and the Secretary of State, and he didn't want to get involved in that. Yeah. It's fascinating how he he comes out of academia. I know he had yeah. been in the, in, in a previous administration. How he understands this, and how he, right. he thrives within it.
2: Yeah, Pat was a great bureaucratic politician. Uh, you know, that that was obvious right from the get-go. In other words, he, he asked for and got uh, these two offices in the White House—his and mine—and our secretaries. Uh, our staff were all across the street in the Executive Office Building, um, and Burns. Offices were actually in the executive <laughs> office really where they, had, they have some elegant offices. It used to be the whole uh, heads of state, war, and, and navy. Uh, but Pat understood the question of where you wanted to be, and you wanted to be as close to the president as you could get. So, right from the beginning, you knew who was there. Now, what happened was two things. Pat, uh, Pat had a relatively low level position in the Kennedy. Johnson administration. Well, Arthur Burns actually had a very high position uh, in the Eisenhower administration. So, and Eisenhower had a very strong cabinet system, mm. uh, and Burns understood that and assumed that that was where there were any power centers. And exactly, and and he was right in the sense that that's exactly what. Uh, Richard Nixon wanted. He wanted uh, to turn over domestic things to the cabinet and he and Henry Kissinger were going to sit alone and, and work out how to get to China. Uh, what happened was uh, he suddenly discovered that he didn't want to have, have anything to do with these people who he had chosen to be his cabinet. I mean, if he had to listen one more day, to to, to particularly to the former governors uh, like George Romney, uh, who is the, uh, the head of HUD, uh, Volpe, who is the governor of Massachusetts with transportation, uh, Hickel Interior, who is the governor of, of Alaska, they never shut up. And they drove him crazy. And he said to Hall the minister chief of staff, keep them away from me. Well, what does that mean? And, and you keep the cabinet away from you, where the cabinet has to... He, he then has turned to his White House, and his White House is Burns uh, and Moynihan. So in a sense, this very much changed the whole direction of how... Uh, how the management of government know, on a policy making level uh, has responded ever since uh, so that uh, the departments still implement the programs, or by and large, if they're, they're important, they're manufactured in the White House. And in many ways, this is exactly where, where it started. And it wasn't at all uh, what. Um, what the president or Richard Nixon wanted. It, it evolved and it evolved in any way. Why did Moynihan win? And uh, Well, Arthur Burns, his <laughs> dear friend who he, uh, who uh, uh, saw the, the president a great deal more than Moynihan because he was also involved in economic policy, but he bored him. Arthur Burns was boring. He sat there pulling on his pipe and, and you know, waiting for the next word. And Moynihan was this person who who use humor, as I didn't mm-hmm. even realize the degree to which humor was a very careful and very effective bureaucratic tool.
0: And you also said he could set an agenda better than anybody else. Okay. What does that mean?
2: All right. What, what was to be or what Dixon thought was that he was creating the Urban Affairs Council, which would be the uh, analogous to the National Security Council. It couldn't be, and it wasn't. It's a silly idea when you think about it. Why the National Security Council is basically three departments? They, mm-hmm. It's a small number of people who all know each other. They've known each other for years. These are the the Secretary of Defense and State are those same people who've been in every sort of meeting for most of their adult life. Suddenly you call it a, a Urban Affairs Council, and who are these people? They're agencies all over the, the government. They've had nothing to do with each other, they, and so forth. They're, and they all are competing for the same pot of money. Which isn't the case with the National Security Council by and large. So that isn't going to work. But it, but the only way now that these cabinet officers can really get through to the president is through this organization, which meets the Urban Affairs Council, and and uh, Pat ahead who's the executive secretary, can set up. Committees can assign cabinet officers to chair them. So, hey, the secretary of agriculture wants a wants a major uh, program, hunger program. How does he get it? He has to go through uh, Pat Moynihan. Uh, the secretary of commerce wants something on minority business. He's got to go through Pat Moynihan. So, he, uh, it, this this organization, which otherwise uh, has no special reason for existing. Uh, advantages one and, and another way Moynihan has no staff he's got five of us mm-hmm. uh, myself and four young people who are 22 years old by and large uh, and we're working out. We, we can't research all of these things so you sign it uh, like the family assistance plan uh, to um, to health education and welfare and they've got people who can work it all out and they do uh, mm-hmm. so we get their staffs uh, and they get our access to the president.
0: I have to ask about one of Moynihan's most famous quotes, which you mentioned in the book. He said, uh, you are entitled to your own opinions, but not to your own facts. I love that. But what did that mean to him and, and how did that come about?
2: <laughs> well, Moynihan was was one of these people uh, who uh, would leave lots of quotes for, for pundits and, and historians uh, and uh, – and and that was a, a beauty. I mean, he 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 lived in a world uh, where increasingly there was a there was plutocracy. That's the right word. Uh, and hey, uh, they're they're getting farther and farther away from from the actual facts. So that seemed to be a natural. Uh, he he tried to live by it. Uh, by the way, let me say that that was not easy to live by. When when he proposed programs like the Family Assistance Plan arthur burns would say prove it and he couldn't prove it because and he understood that because he too was a scholar he was he was proposing things that didn't exist he w- he was asking the president to take risks uh, to do things in which uh, he hoped the world would be better but he had no evidence and it was tough dealing with a man as as brilliant as as burns prove it he would say and we couldn't so that that really in a strange way is how you have your own opinion and your own facts. And it came back uh, sort of a boomerang uh, on this particular issue. Uh, And it was very effective for for Arthur Burns.
0: Yeah, I've used that line uh, (laughs) to to this day with friends of mine. Um, Let me me, uh, point out, some. uh, take a different direction in the book. It's full of amazing anecdotes, like meeting (laughs) Kirk Douglas in the White House basement uh, in a concert honoring uh, Duke Ellington. He received the Medal of Freedom on his 70th birthday. There was a party. Nixon played "Happy Birthday" on the piano. I'm learning this all from your book. Sure. And then a big jazz music uh, concert happens. Lou Rawls. Let me let me read a little bit. uh, You write, the Nixons go to bed shortly after midnight. The rest of us dance and play and listen until after 2. Thirty-three years later in 2002, Blue Note Records will put out a recording of the concert from a cassette tape saved by Lynn Garment. So what was it like to be at that?
2: Oh, it was a fantastic thing. The the Presidential Medal of Freedom, uh, considered the highest civilian award, was actually invented by Pat Moynihan for, uh, 1963, for John Kennedy, who wanted somehow to award uh, people of, of, of merit, and there was a whole history of not being able to get through events like that through the, through the Senate, uh, and he, uh, Kennedy turned this question over to Arthur Goldberg, the Secretary of Labor. Goldberg turned it over to his special assistant, a young man named Pat Moynihan. Pat Moynihan found a medal, called the Medal of Freedom, which was actually given in World War II to spies, but it hadn't been used very much in recent years. Pat discovered it and said, okay, uh, we'll call it the Presidential Medal, the highest honor. Uh, and the press didn't challenge that. Oh, if the president says it's the it's the Medal of the Highest Honor, it's the Medal of the Highest Honor. And so uh, actually, of course, uh, President Kennedy was killed before he could actually – could give the first awards it posthumously was given to him by Lyndon Johnson. So there is Pat Moynihan back in the White House helping uh, Richard Nixon select people who should get this award uh, and uh, – <laughs> And one of them is, is, is uh, Duke Ellington. It's his seventieth birthday. Uh, Len Garment, uh, who was uh, also who had been Nixon's law partner in New York and who was on the on the White House staff, and had been a musician, had paid his way through college. He was uh, he played the uh, saxophone in Woody Herman's band, and it really it was his idea because he knew all of the, the musician part of it uh, to put this thing together. Uh, so. These they had the grandest jazz musicians of the the era there, Uh, and uh, and and the award was quite moving. Of course, uh, Duke Ellington had, in the French style, had to kiss Richard Nixon on both cheeks. (laughs) Richard Nixon sort of blushed a little about that, uh, and um, played "Happy Birthday." Nixon always could hit something. Piano to that degree, and then actually, um, Ellington who got up and and improvised a, a new song to Pat that is not to Pat Moynihan, uh, but to uh, to to Pat Nixon. So there, it was it was very moving uh, all the way around, uh, and of course say, the same thing. The, the Nixon's went upstairs to bed, and we just continued. And, and at that time, it was just a jam session. Everybody who f- was there, not even the people who were on the official program, so including Len Garman, who just <laughs> happened to bring one of his instruments, <laughs> and he was playing too. And it was really quite wonderful.
0: That that it, and it it conveys well in the book. I <laughs> was I love that part. Um, Kind of switching to a uh, maybe a darker note. Uh, maybe it was in 1970. You describe how uh, Nixon just wants to be alone. Uh, his chief of staff yeah. declares Wednesdays off limits, yeah. except he wants to be alone with Henry Kissinger.
2: Well, he wanted to be alone with somebody usually who he needed. It was Haldeman. It was Kissinger uh, most of the most of the time, uh, and and Haldeman recognized. Uh, that Nixon needed this and in fact set up a second office of the president, the Oval Office under Nixon really just became for ceremonial purposes. In fact, there's a part in a book where they uh, uh, Pat Nixon brings in a New York decorator and they redesign the place. <laughs> it's absolutely, I mean, it looks like a Hollywood set. MGM could have designed it. In fact, the gold is so gold that one of my my youngest kids, about five years old, looked at it and he, he was blinded. He couldn't it. Look at this light. So he went, Nixon went off to another office across the street in the executive office building uh, where he could be alone and where he could think, where he could get his yellow legal pad he, uh, and he could outline what, what he wanted to do. And this this was, was the way he worked. It was also, of course, in that room that he put in the tapes. But this was 19... 19- 71 that he put in the tape so that's that's what he worked I mean, it was it was just in every way richard nixon was in the in the wrong place maybe at the right time but in the wrong place he, he, he would have been a brilliant secretary of state
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh he was an unnatural politician which i, I show from example uh, in, in the book uh and yet uh, that's what he wanted to be, and he forced himself to be it in a persistent way that I was with him and watched uh, over the course of many years. In other words, you, uh, you, you could you could stand behind him in a receiving line watching him greet people. He wasn't Nelson Rockefeller. <laughs> he wasn't he, you know, or Hubert Humphrey. Uh, this was not his natural uh, position and place in life.
0: And yet, uh, in the end, you say that he felt befriended by Pat Moynihan. And why is that important? I
2: think this was an important point. First of all, he was paranoid. Most politicians, most who get to be president are to some degree. Uh, in fact, here at Brookings, early on in the, in the Nixon administration, we had two very good scholars who did a study of the highest executive, the executive in the federal government, uh, and concluded that even paranoids have enemies. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so N- Nixon was suspicious of these people and had right to be in many cases. Uh, and here was was one end. The first thing he had asked when one end name was raised during the transition: "Will he be loyal?" He said, "You know, I don't be Republican. I mean, you know, loyal to us." Okay, he had this person who was a liberal, cross an X on that. He was from Harvard, cross an X on that. He was a Kennedyite, cross an X on that. All of the things that somehow uh, were red flags and so forth. And of course, he was he was against Vietnam the Vietnam War. Uh, and they made an arrangement. He was not going to talk publicly about these things while he was in the president's office. And what did he do? He turned out to be totally loyal. He did never. He never went out and told funny stories at Georgetown cocktail parties the way a lot of people were doing under, let's say, Lyndon Johnson. You know, doing their job during the day. At night, they were saying things about the president. He never did that in any way. And I think ultimately, who Nixon, who honored loyalty to such a degree and could be so tough with the, when it was the adverse of loyalty, recognized not only was he engaged, <laughs> including entertained uh, by this advisor and uh, and educated by this advisor. But this man uh, was up, lived up to his his commitment. He was loyal to him. Uh, and that really uh, was terribly uh, important. Uh, you know, he had just inadvertently, that is Richard Dickens, inadvertently picked the right guy.
0: And here's another line from the book that really struck me. You wrote that um – as, as Moynihan is given this opportunity to come into the Nixon administration, you write, Pat is given an opportunity to try to shape a president in office. This is not the way presidential assistants are supposed to think about their time in the White House. But Pat Moynihan has created himself as someday a biographer will explain. <laughs> you
2: know, here is Moynihan, a social scientist in the, in the White House, uh, had this, suddenly had this friend who was sitting alone across the street. Uh, and it's a question of, uh, you, he, he, it's like a uh, a wish. You can, uh, I'm I'm giving you uh, the fairy godmother of all things political. You, uh, Pat Moynihan, you can do anything uh, that doesn't cost too much, and that doesn't embarrass me. And there's a chapter in which all sorts of little things happen. Of course, the main thing is the family assistance and that is argued out. Fully, but there are other little things. For example, Pat Wynnehen, who's a social scientist, tells the president, you know, there's something really terrible in our statistical system. Why? They're arranged in white and Mm non-white. I mean, that's outrageous. Can you sit there if you're not uh, white, you're something that's non-white? And the president, yeah, that's right, and do something about that. So he calls a meeting of all the people who use statistical systems. He said, okay, what should other people be called? And we changed the the statistical systems of the United States. You know, the press didn't even particularly notice. I I I wrote a note to uh, uh, our communications people. and said, hey, this is pretty historic. And it's strictly coming from the White House, from the president, with the advice of Moynihan. Nobody's even noticing. So there were a whole series of things, including uh, a presidential message on population. Uh, very strong, two presidential messages having to do with the importance of the first five years of life. Uh, and, uh, so, um, uh, this, the, <laughs> Richard Nixon, the fairy godmother, I like that, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> but, but but there he was, uh, offering these things, and what a thrill it was for Pat Moynihan. You know, Pat Moynihan was born in 1929. Uh, He he went into the Navy in 1944. His whole life, the president was Franklin Delano Mm Roosevelt. That was his model. That's the model that happens when you're first noticing who the president is. And that was the model he was carrying to the White House with him. Well, that wasn't the model of Richard Nixon.
0: Well, I know you were there 45 years ago. You were there. How do you how do you write a book with so much detail? What's what's the process?
2: Well, it's, it's certainly it's the twenty first book, but certainly the hardest book that I've ever written in that way. I describe it someplace as like a, uh, cleaning a, 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 an oil painting. You take a, a solvent and a little piece of cotton, and you go over the same ground around and around and around until so the picture starts to to appear. You have certain things to work with. Obviously, you have the public papers of the president, Richard Nixon, 1969, 1970, everything that was, uh, he said, statements he made to Congress are all there. You have Moynihan's papers in the Library of Congress. The thing about Moynihan is he never threw anything out. Mm -hmm. Actually, the index to the Moynihan papers is 1,100 pages. The index is 1,100 pages. (laughs) And and I, and I did read everything that was there in 1969 and 70. Thanks, of course, to my wonderful interns, what they went over with their iPhone cameras and took pictures of all of those papers. Uh, and also uh, to, to Steve Wiseman, who had put together the Nixon papers and did a marvelous job. By far, the most important papers are there. And I worked with him on what was important there. So I had the Nixon papers. Now, I had my own papers, which were modest. Uh, in a strange way, I had stopped taking notes in May of 1969, as many people do. I mean, you're, you are so busy. You are so tired. That you say, oh, well, I'll, I'll get it from my logs. But you don't. But I had actually some careful notes, at least through May of that year. And then a marvelous thing happened that allowed me to write this book, which I could not in any other way have done, And that is our adversary, in a sense, our intellectual adversary, Arthur Burns, had kept notes himself. Had two little books, you know, that you buy in the candy store of 39 cents, 49 cents. So, uh, and, and had scrawled in his notes. And he had died. And it, his wife had given them to the, to the University of Michigan. They were eventually published by, the University, by Indiana University. And wow, I mean, these were notes... That uh, were not published. I mean, when you publish things, when you're alive, you clean them up. Uh, These notes were raw. I mean, he, Arthur Burns turned out not too much like anybody. And he wrote it all down. Although, strangely, he did like Pat Moynihan. (laughs) He simply disagreed with him. But he liked him. And that's all in the notes, too. And Moynihan, who ultimately wrote a book on the politics of guaranteed income, uh, writes in that. That he liked Burns too, so it was a different sort of adversarial relationship. So you have all of those things that you got to be very careful in something like that. You've had forty plus years of telling stories. Throw those out. Those are stories in which all of the, the edges have been rubbed. Uh, you know, you've told those wonderful stories, and they get more wonderful. Everybody has them. You don't have to be in the White House have stories like this. Get rid of those stories then you have to be very careful about making assumptions because in a sense, uh, historians spend a lot of time making assumptions. They don't really know uh, what um, Adam said to Jefferson. Uh, uh, They know what they think he said because they don't think they understand the two. men. I can't do that because I knew all these people. I can't make any assumptions about what they might have said or been thinking at that time. Uh, by the way, that may be a reason why this is such a small book. You know, this is a book uh, that a friend told me he, he read in a Sunday afternoon. Right. Uh, and I think that's important. So you put all of these things. There were several people who helped me a lot. Uh, um, there were four young men that I mentioned before that were basically our staff. Two of them were 22. One was 25. The oldest one had just become 30. Uh, and two of the four... Uh, they were all helpful, but two of the four I could call on and say, "Hey, was that exactly the way you remember it?" And there were funny things that you you, you, you get different mm-hmm. in, in that regard. Uh, so I had that sort of help as well. Um, and to some degree, I still have a memory. I'm <laughs> gone. Uh, some of them just frankly, that's the way I remember. It. They're not in anybody's book, but they you know, for example, uh, you, you said a uh, uh, Kurt Douglas. Uh, I you know, you don't meet Kurt Douglas every day, so you remember that. Some of these, you have to remember that. That story was very simple. You uh, see the design of our West Wing basement, Kissinger and Pointahan, and, uh, and in front of the situation room, uh, there was an officer's desk, and across from that was a couch. And um, Kissinger was just a magnet for celebrities, Hollywood people just loved to, to stop by, and they had to sit in that couch while they were waiting to see henry who was never who was, was embarrassing to them because henry was never on time uh by the way the, the men's room was on the other side so you walk by the men's room and you're looking at these people and one day i'm looking uh at uh, kurt douglas and i bring myself up and say excuse me mr douglas i'm stephen hess and and you're waiting for Kissinger, yes you know he always takes a long time in you know, my office is right there why, why did you you'd like to come in and have a cup of coffee while you're waiting instead of sitting? Oh sure, why not? So he goes into my office I quickly I rush into Pat's office. hey, I got Henry Kissinger here, so he stops what he's doing. we have got about twenty twenty five minutes of uh, we go all the, the mess they bring in some coffee mm-hmm. as well. We have about 25 minutes with Kurt Douglas, Wow. interesting guy. We had a good time. So it's those sorts of stories that that you, you remember even if you don't have specific mm-hmm. notes. Other things, you, you you have to be careful. These, a lot of these people in this book, Moynihan, including Rumsfeld and whatnot, uh, they did subsequent interviews, but right. they were important people. And they claim that they remember things. And then you, can, you say, hey, great, I've got an interview uh, with, uh, with Rumsfeld and he remembers such and such things. And you, then you look at your notes and you say, that's not the way it happened at all. Everybody is rewriting history. They're writing it almost as fast as it happens. And you've got to be awfully careful. You can't rely on that.
0: Well you call this a small book, uh, but it it is it 's so much more it 's a very large story. I felt like I was there uh even though I was an infant um let me let me close let me ask you to close uh this way um, daniel patrick moynihan he 's known to most of us first of all by his full name his his the three names he 's known uh for his uh service as a, a four term u s senator from New York, his ambassadorships to India and the united nations and he 's known for his academic life. Uh, but you knew him as, as much more than that. And you you, you talk about, and you, there's a picture on the cover. You have three of his iconic bow ties framed and hanging in your home. Can you reflect on on that? The bow ties, I
2: should say, with this. When, 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 when he, he died with his, his, his wife, Liz asked me if there's anything I wanted. And I thought a moment. I said, I, I, I'd like three bow ties. She said, you don't wear bow ties. I said, no, no. Uh, I'm going to have them framed. So she gave me a few portals. But luckily, thanks to her, she gave me sort of ratty bow ties. I mean, they, they look as if they've really been worn. Uh, and I had them framed. They, they, they sit on a little uh, easel of it's in my living room. And by golly, it means that every day when I pass them, I can think of Pat Moynihan. And Pat Moynihan, uh, I remember, as a, uh, my wife does too, as a, as a very, a very dear friend, I... I we, we We were together uh in odd ways when the, on their fortieth wedding anniversary Liz, Liz and Pat asked if we would join them to go to to Turkey imagine going to Turkey with them. I mean it was quite an experience because Liz was something of an archaeologist as well, so we were right in the various digs uh, you know once he when he was senator uh, it was oh, it was a boiling hot July day uh, in Washington and he calls up and says uh." Get ready, we're going to have a picnic. And you're out of your mind, Pat. have you, said, don't worry, wait. And he is found on the Capitol grounds. There is a grotto. <laughs> because he's a senator, he gets the policeman to open the grotto. And we go in there. It's cool. We can chill our wine there. And we have a picnic. So to, to have been a close friend of Pat Moynihan's was a joy. And that's really how I remember him. That's why I I wanted to write this book because it really started just as a testimonial. And it's it's dedicated to his wife. I wanted her to see it too. Uh, And uh, I'll see. I hope people see it the way I I did it. I didn't mean to to be mean to anybody else. But basically, he's the center carrier. And this is very important. One last thing. Uh, I've got to handle Nixon very delicately, because it's a book about Moynihan. Uh, Nixon is a person who can run away with a story. Anything you do with Nixon, suddenly you're someplace else. So I've got to be very careful about how much I use Nixon in what context, as well as I've said earlier, how much I use myself, uh, because it's it's a focus of Pat Moynihan through a very narrow part of his life, which was significant. But he's a man who did so many other things. I really do think for that of the, of the second half of the 20th century, American public figures, excluding presidents, people who were secretaries of state, and Supreme Court justices, he will be the most written about American. And, and it, it touched everything. Secrecy, transportation, uh, the Senate, uh, finance, and so forth. So uh, the way it's happening now, we haven't had a Robert Carroll yet writing the great biography as he did of Lyndon Johnson. But this is the third, I'm the third person who has taken a little bit of Nixon. A great professor from Brown wrote about the, the Moynihan Report. The great professor from McGill wrote about Nixon's moment at the at the UN. So we're dealing with with, with Nixon. I mean, we're dealing with one in, in little pieces mm-hmm. uh, until somebody comes along who can has the time and the skills to put it to put it all together.
0: Well, uh, Steve, uh, this reader, I think this is a brilliant book. I loved it. Uh, I had fun reading it. Uh, I commit it to everybody who listens to this podcast, and indeed, you can read it in a day and come out uh, with uh, with so much. Um, thank you for your time today, and thank you for writing this book.
2: Pleasure being with you. Thank you.
0: To learn more about Steve Hess and his wonderful new book, the professor and the president, Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the Nixon White House, please visit brookings.edu. You'll be very glad that you did. If you have any questions for Steve or any guests of the podcast, please send an email to bcp at Brookings.edu. And now, Bruce Jones talks about his new book, The Risk Pivot.
3: Hello. I'm Bruce Jones. I'm the Deputy Director for Foreign Policy here at the Brookings Institution. And I've just completed a book called Risk Pivot, Great Powers, International Security, and the Energy Revolution, together with David Stevens. This is a book about the geopolitical consequences of truly revolutionary changes in the supply, demand, and flow of energy. These changes are transforming the global economy, reordering the relationships between states, and leading to rapid changes in the nature of and prospects for international security. Furthermore, climate change and fossil fuel pollution are creating pressures for an unprecedented shift in the way we use energy, piling new problems on both national and international policy. The world's leading powers are grappling to understand this revolution. The pressure is greatest in Asia, where China and India are facing that resource risk is the flip side of their growing economic muscle. Both their domestic politics and their foreign policies are shaped by energy insecurity, as each country, in very different ways, tries to respond to a serious economic and geopolitical threat. By contrast, the United States has re-emerged as a dominant energy player, much to its surprise and that of its rivals. It enjoys increased strategic latitude as a result, but remains unsure how it will play the cards that energy riches have placed in its hand. What kind of globalization and global order does it want to be part of? Will it use energy to reinforce that order or to undermine it? Does it have the domestic tools and political consensus to drive effective policy and to play a global leadership role? This debate is shaped by the fact that we live in an unusual geopolitical moment when some of the world's top 10 economies and military powers also happen to be developing countries and many states are rising economically. For these countries, still struggling with poverty even as they navigate global finance and international security, energy is the source of acute challenges and domestic political strain. This book is about those issues too, as it is about the major knock-on effects that changes in the energy markets have had on that other most political commodity, food, and therefore necessarily also land and water. The way the connections between energy, food, land, or water are playing out for resource insecure citizens in the world's rising states is also central to this book. We are partway through a revolution in the way energy is produced, consumed, and distributed. This is a book about why and how that change is happening and what it means. The focus is on the geopolitics of energy. That is what the paramount importance of energy to modern societies means for patterns of global power. Our topic is security in a traditional sense of strategic rivalry between the world's dominant military forces. But it's also about the ways international power is constrained now that all major powers are enmeshed in a complex economic globalization that requires an uninterrupted flow of resources to survive. We have three central messages. First, that Asia's appetite for resources comes with a cost. As energy flows to the region's emerging powers, China and India in particular, so does risk. We don't yet know whether we will see a full US foreign policy pivot to Asia but what we call a risk pivot is well underway. At the same time, US energy security is improving as it relies to a growing extent on domestic and unre- unreli- unreliable regional supplies and its exposure to risk is diminishing as a result. It's diminishing but it's not disappearing altogether. That's our second message. Third. Climate change is a challenge that carves its way through every aspect of the energy revolution, places the resulting shift in geopolitical risk in a new light and is set to become a predominant risk of globalization. And so this book is also finally about the loose system of global energy and climate governance whose shape we can begin to discern. Energy and other resource challenges are currently amplifying political, economic and social tensions whether among great powers or more broadly across the international system. A new flotilla of government institutions aims to manage these tensions, but it lacks clear goals and direction and is a long way from being able to function effectively. For the United States, this creates a choice. It could choose to review resource tensions as an inevitable consequence of a changing balance of economic power and of a dynamic but fragile globalization. Or it could seize an opportunity for leadership. Leadership not in the form of military adventurism, but through the task of forging new arrangements for governance, seeking to buttress the existing international order, and by acting as an admiral that creates and directs a coherent governance system. To learn more about this idea or about our book, please visit our website, www.brookings.edu. Thank you very much.
0: If you have any questions for John, Steve, Bruce, or any guests of the Brookings Cafeteria, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. This podcast is made possible by the production skills of Zach Kolzer, the art design of Jessica Pavone, and web support from Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abelagin. You can listen to episodes on our website at brookings.edu bcp on iTunes and on Stitcher.